When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora. Ko William Rayahou, no mai ki te hipi pāngo. Welcome to Black Sheep. We're on Queen Street, Auckland, June 17, 1936. It's a grim sight. New Zealand was in the grip of the Great Depression. They were called the sugar bag years, and many New Zealanders were so poor they had to wear old sacks because they couldn't afford even second-hand clothes. But things had started to turn around. More people could afford a few small luxuries, a newspaper, a pair of socks ticket to the movie theatre. And coming from inside one of those theatres was a noise. But the audience weren't cheering for their favourite actor. They were cheering a word which flashed up on their screen, like the 1930s equivalent of a breaking news alert on your smartphone. The word was guilty. For the people in that theatre, this was the end of a year-long saga, watching what might be the most bizarre criminal case of the early 20th century, the murder trials of flamboyant 44-year-old orchestra conductor Eric Mario. And yes, that's trials plural. Eric was twice convicted of poisoning his wife, 29-year-old actor and singer Thelma Mario. This story has Everything you could ever want in a crime story. Sex, drugs, lies, celebrity, incredibly graphic pathologist reports. Tragically, true crime podcasts weren't invented in the 30s, so the public had to read about the Mario case in the newspapers or line up for a spot in the public gallery at the courthouse. There wasn't a lot of news when it came along that yeah. had to be grabbed. Yeah. I think there are on average um, two murders a year in New Zealand. Oh, nonsense. I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, it's in the book. Sorry. Oh, do you mean then? Then. Oh, I see what you meant now. God, what have I been doing? Or what do I do every week? This is in the 1930s. This is the 30s, yeah. 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 I guess I should introduce our guests for today's show. Charles Ferrell is a social historian at Victoria University, and Rebecca Ellis is a High Court judge. I should stress she's not talking in her capacity as a judge on this show, but I'm going to call her Justice Alice anyway because I'm paranoid that if I call a judge by their first name, I'll be disowned by every editor I've ever met. Together, Justice Rebecca Alice and Dr Farrell wrote a book about the Mario case. It's called The Trials of Eric Mario. For Justice Alice, this case is kind of a family story. I grew up in the house that was owned by Rex Mason, who was the Attorney General at the time of the Mario trials and who was a very passionate Mario supporter. My father, who was also um, in the law, got interested in the case and he just thought it might be worth having a look at. So I got all the files out of archives in those days and never really did anything with it until I mentioned it to Charlie about 20 years ago. 
Our story begins around one o'clock in the afternoon, Monday the 15th of April, 1935. There's a phone call to the office of Dr John Drieden, an Auckland physician. On the other end was 25-year-old Frieda Beatrice Stark. Yeah, that Frieda Stark, one of the most well-known figures in the history of New Zealand show business. In World War II, she became famous for dancing in a feather headdress, gold paint and a G-string in front of US sailors. They called her the Fever of the Fleet. But in the 1930s, Frieda wasn't famous. She was learning ballet and working towards her advanced certificate from the New Zealand Dance Academy. Anyway, Frieda told Dr Drieden that her friend, Thelma Mario, was badly unwell. She'd been unconscious for the better part of three days. Dr Drieden arrived at the Mario house in Mount Eden around 3pm. He was greeted at the door by Frieda Stark and Thelma's husband, Eric Mario. Eric looked drawn and pale. Frieda was clearly distressed. Thelma was lying in bed, unconscious. Frieda later described her like this. She was blue in the face, and perspiration had dried on her face. And there was some brown saliva that had run down her face and caked in her hair. She was just gasping for breath. The doctor walked over and lifted Thelma's eyelid. Oh, it looks like veronal poisoning. We probably should say what veronal actually is, because yes. it's not a drug that is, is, is around anymore. It's a form of barbiturate, isn't it? It's I a... think it is, and it was used for sleep, and it was quite notorious, I think, for its side effects um, and its predictive qualities, which is why it's not used anymore. It features, I think, in other... It does, it does, yeah. There's um, Veronol's referred to in a bunch of other cases as well, um, but it, it's picked up in a literary way as well. Um, there's a number of novels and plays that refer to Veronol. Dr Dredden asked if Eric Mario had had any of these potentially dangerous sleeping tablets in his house. Eric said yes. He walked out to the laundry. He came back with an empty bottle. He said it had been practically full when he last saw it. Dr. Dredden rushed Thelma to hospital. Eric went too. When they arrived, Dr. Dredden gave his diagnosis of veronal poisoning. But Eric Mario told the doctors he didn't think it was veronal. He said Thelma had taken a different drug. He said she bought it from the chemist a couple of days earlier because she was worried she might be pregnant. In any case... It was too late. Thelma Mario died two hours after admission. An hour and a half later, Eric called his assistant, Eleanor Brownlee, who drove him home. He arrived to find two police officers speaking with Frieda Stark. They took Eric into another room. The lead officer introduced himself as Detective Sergeant Arnold Bell Michaeljohn. He recorded his interview with Eric, and those notes were later read at the trial. Michael John started by asking why Thelma had access to so much veronal. Do you think I'm a murderer? 
Michael John switched tack. Did Eric Mario use Veronol himself? Do I look like an addict? Michael John walked to the door and brought in Frida Stark. Miss Stark has stated that she asked you to call a doctor for your wife several times. I don't remember that, my dear. Detective Michael John asked about the mystery drug Thelma had taken, the one Eric claimed she had bought from the chemist because she thought she might be pregnant. Miss Stark has stated that you told her you had bought a bottle of dope from the chemist for your wife. You are mistaken, my dear. Eric Mario took the detectives out to the laundry, where he kept the Veronal. They found one empty Veronal bottle, three empty whiskey bottles, and an empty pill box. Eric said this was the box his wife had got from the chemist. I feel like a criminal. Is there anything in this to hang me? I feel like going and hanging myself, bringing all this Veronal into the house. Over the next few months, there was an inquest into Thelma's death. As Dr. Dredden had suspected, all signs pointed to veronal poisoning. The police later found two more empty veronal bottles in the garden. Eric admitted buying the drug to use himself, even though it had been made illegal a few weeks before Thelma's death. Then, on September 2nd, 1935, Eric Mario was arrested and charged with murder. So before we get stuck into the court case, let's wind back a bit. Who was Eric Mario? If you asked that question in Auckland in 1935, everybody would know the answer. Eric Mario was famous. He was a flamboyant figure who walked up and down the street in a full coat and tails, gloves, smoking a cigarette out of a long holder, tipping his hat and going, hello, hello, to everyone he passed. That was an unusual sight in Mount Eden in the 1930s, somebody in their, <laughs> in their tails with a long well, he, cigarette holder. But uh, he used to stroll up and down Queen Street. Yes, right, it's Queen Street where I think he caused the most... Um, sensation, um, exactly as Becky says, with this, this long cigarette holder. He, w- he was a handsome man, I think, um, and I think women did like him. So he must, have had some, uh, he must have had some charm, I think, probably quite a lot, I suspect. He also tried to, well, he did, in fact, um, establish the, what was called the Mario Symphony Orchestra, which was, this was before there was any such thing as the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. So it was, I think, New Zealand's first professional orchestra. Eric Mario's fashion choices and mannerisms made him a bizarre figure by the standards of early 20th century New Zealand, especially in the middle of the Great Depression. Kiwis in those days were already inclined to see artistic types as a bit weird and eccentric, and Eric didn't disappoint. For one thing, he conducted his orchestras using a gigantic baton covered in tinsel. For a bit bit of pizzazz, I'd say it was... Two and a half, two and a half feet long, maybe. It was a long baton. Wow. A long baton. <laughs> One of the musicians defended him by saying that you could see it better if because you're in an orchestra. Yeah. Um, I played orchestras, and you don't need to have something <laughs> to be able to see. Well, it doesn't seem to have caught on. <laughs> no, it Music seemed to run in Eric's blood. And he came from a family of musicians who had immigrated to Australia from Austria, I think. 
Eric's dad became a professor of music at Sydney University. His brother Raymond was a child prodigy on the violin. This is a recording of him playing in 1911. And Mario himself went back from Australia to study music in Europe. Detective Sergeant Arnold Michael John went digging into Eric Mario's background in Australia and Europe, especially the UK, where he began his career as a conductor. What Michael John uncovered was a scandalous series of relationships with wealthy women. He was sort of painted as being potentially a little bit of a con man, sort of marrying oh, women for their money. I think he's a total money. grifter. Yeah. You know, I think that's what, probably what we call him now, in a way. Yeah. Because he had no money, and so he needed to do something to get money. I mean, he, he worked, he tried to make money out of music. I think he did get um, some royalties from the music that he wrote, made a bit of money um, from the productions he put on, but he was really very poor, and I think he probably quite liked the high life, mm. the champagne and the cigarettes and possibly the drugs as well. In his testimony to the court, Detective Sergeant Michael John summarised Eric Mario's first dodgy relationship. About 1913, when Dr Herbert Edward Gray, late of Escher, Surrey, and his wife were staying at the seaside, they met Mario. Mrs Gray ran away with Mario. When Dr Gray heard of his wife's pregnancy, he insisted that the child should be born in his house. He took her to Escher, where Elizabeth Patricia was born. Mrs. Gray went back to Mario, and about four years later, Gray heard his wife was ill and found her living with Mario in squalid surroundings and again pregnant. Gray again insisted that the child Graham should be born in his house, and after the birth, Mrs. Gray went away to live with Mario. In 1920, when he was still living with Mrs. Gray and their two children, Eric Mario got involved with another woman. Mario met a Miss Nora Bailey, a professional violinist, and he lived with her, and she was known as Mrs. Mario. He was usually away at weekends, and thus it will be seen that for six years he associated with the two women. At the end of those six years, in 1926, Mrs. Gray died from tuberculosis. Dr. Gray was pretty generous about this whole situation. He helped pay for the upkeep of Betty and Graham, who were legally recorded as his children, even though Eric was their biological father. And Eric seems to have exploited this. In March 1930, Mario demanded from Dr. Gray £91 to settle some debts for board for the two children. Instead, Mario spent all his money in purchasing a motorboat. Mario left for Sydney in December 1930, owing school and hotel fees for the two children. So Eric Mario left Dr Gray and Nora Bailey behind in the UK and went to Sydney with his two kids, Betty and Graham. While in Australia, Mario conducted orchestras in Sydney on his arrival there, but for about 18 months he was out of work. This wasn't all that surprising. The Great Depression was starting to bite. Fewer and fewer people could afford orchestra tickets. Instead, Eric supported himself and his kids by getting into a relationship with another woman. He became engaged to a Miss Eileen Stone, a professional dancer. During the engagement, he borrowed about £300 from the mother of Miss Stone. This woman says she practically kept Mario and the two children for the 18 months he was out of work. He contracted debts in Sydney and was also known as a heavy drinker. 
An orchestra leader in Sydney told Mrs Stone that Mario was known to them as the gentleman crook. It was around this time that Eric Mario met Thelma Trott, a beautiful actress, 17 years younger than himself, with a small family fortune. Together, they travelled to New Zealand, where they put on opera and orchestral performances. He is the conductor, she is the leading lady. And that's not all they did together. While still engaged, Miss Stone, Eric Mario married Thelma Trott on the 18th of October, 1933. Miss Stone, on being informed that Mario had married in New Zealand, became hysterical. But this wasn't some kind of whirlwind romance. Eric said his marriage to Thelma was a marriage of convenience. She marries him with £500. He gets the £500. He needs to put on these performances, in particular an opera, popular opera at the time, the Duchess of Danzig. You know, I mean, this, this requires money. And the trade-off, I think, was that she got to be the leading lady in the shows. And they get to live as they like, I suppose, in terms of their private life, I think. Yeah, their private lives. In his first interview with Detective Sergeant Michael John, Eric Mario said this. Look, I don't want this to go down, but between us, my wife is fonder of women than of men. You know what I mean? Just a tip. If you were ever talking to the police about a suspicious death, it's usually not a great idea to ask them to keep a key piece of evidence just between us. Anyway, the police dutifully recorded Eric's words. Then, in a later interview, they asked him how he knew his wife was a lesbian. I knew definitely through having been told by my wife before we were married that she was a lesbian. We agreed before we were married that we would not have sexual intercourse, and I've not broken that promise. Now, we're going to get more into this later on, but this accusation seems to have left the police officers confused. I had not known the word lesbian or its meaning. But Eric Mario was happy to explain. He handed over romantic letters his wife had received from a woman in Australia. I shall never forget that I've held you close in my arms and that I've been proud to think myself your lover. Eric also showed the police some nude photographs of a woman which his wife liked to look at. And that woman was none other than Frieda Stark. Decades later, when she came out as openly gay, Frieda confirmed that she and Thelma had, in fact, been lovers. Here's how she put it in an interview with an oral historian. They brought my old Mario, because he knew everything being in show business, and I used to sleep with Thelma to keep her company (laughs) while he was playing the orchestra. He came home this night and everything was dark, and I knew he was there. He was fast asleep, pretending to be, and he came in and he grabbed the um, bed covers and switched it off right like that and we were looking so proper, so innocent. (laughs) And we'd had a lovely evening, but he was just a little bit too late. So not only was Thelma in a relationship with Frida, Frida had basically moved into their house and Eric Mario knew all about it. He said he knew about it before they were married. Is that true? We don't know. Did he mind? We don't know that either. 
But these kind of marriages of convenience weren't all that unusual at the time. Frida herself later married a gay man called Harold Robinson before she came out. As for Eric Mario's sex life, well, he had a reputation as a ladies' man, but he may not have actually been sleeping with anybody at the time Thelma died. Justice Ellis and Dr Farrell got this story when they interviewed one of his lawyers, Trevor Henry. Who was Mario's junior counsel at the trials. He said Mario had told him that he was taking so much murinal that it made him impotent. At the time of Thelma's death, Eric was drinking alcohol and taking Veronol virtually every day. In fact, he told Trevor Henry that he was so drunk and stoned in the final few days of Thelma's life, he could barely remember what happened. Up until this point, we've been telling the established facts of the case. The defence accepted that Eric had some dodgy relationships in his past. They agreed he'd accused his wife of being a lesbian, and we now know that accusation was accurate. And the defence confirmed he bought the Veronol, which killed Thelma. From now on, things are going to get more complicated. There were three key witnesses the weekend Thelma died. First... Eric Mario, the accused. By his own admission, he was heavily intoxicated that weekend, so not the most reliable witness. That's probably why he never testified at trial. Second, Eric's 17-year-old son, Graham. Third and final, Frida Stark, Thelma's lover. Although, again, just to be clear, she wasn't admitting that at the time, given the prejudice gay people faced in society. Frida was the Crown's star witness, Their whole case hung on her testimony. She testified that in the year before Thelma's death, her marriage had fallen apart. The depression was in full swing. Eric was drinking heavily. He'd recently lost his job at the St James Theatre. Frida talked about one night in particular when he came home drunk and angry. I heard a row in the front room. I heard a bang and Thelma came running down the passage to my room with Mr Mario following her. She was crying and holding her face. She said to me, don't let him get me. Mario tried to bring his wife back to her room, but she clung onto the bedclothes and wouldn't let go. Mario's condition at that time was that he was very hysterical. Graham was there in addition to Mrs Mario and myself. Graham had to hit him in the chest, like to knock him down on the bed to quieten him. A few months later, Saturday, 17th of February, Frida said there was another argument. Thelma and Frida were in bed together. Eric came home drunk. This time, he had another person with him. His assistant, Eleanor Brownlee. Mrs Mario said, She can't stay the night. You knew Frida was staying here. Mario replied, Oh, She can sleep anywhere. Frida said the two argued angrily. Eventually, Eleanor left. This, according to the Crown, was Eric Mario's motive for murder. They argued Eric and Eleanor were having an affair. Here's how the prosecutor, A.H. Johnston, put it. 
a very experienced man of the world found a young girl who could be an extremely useful assistant, whose mission in life, at that time at any rate, seemed to have been to perform every possible kind of service for him, menial or otherwise. He seemed almost to have cast some spell upon her. Her qualifications were similar to those of his own wife. They were both university graduates, and they were musicians. Was it not that his own wife was now an encumbrance? And so at the end of March, we find him out of employment, married, an addict to drink, taking Veronal every day, 500 pounds of his wife's money spent. His wife was nothing to him, sexually or financially. So, Eleanor Brownlee came from a rich family, and we know Eric was a bit of a grifter, so maybe Eleanor was his new mark. But there was no actual evidence of an affair. Eric and Eleanor both denied it, so did Eric's daughter Betty. Nobody ever caught the two in a compromising position or noticed them sneaking off together. The most suspicious thing was that Eleanor sometimes drove Eric home when he was drunk and sometimes washed his clothes for him. What's more, as Justice Rebecca Alice mentioned, Eric Mario may not have been capable of having a sexual affair because his veronal addiction had made him impotent. And Justice Alice has another reason for doubting the story of an affair. All Eric Mario's previous partners were beautiful, glamorous women. This sounds awful, but she was too much too plain. I mean, that's, I think he said that. She, I mean, she was quite plain. She was a keen musician herself. She wanted to learn from Mario. And there's, there's no doubt that there was a, a, you know, a serious professional, personal friendship happening there. Anyway, this was the Crown's explanation of Eric Mario's motive, and they had another suspicious detail. The Friday before Thelma died, Eric gave an envelope to his daughter Betty. This was written on the front. Only to be opened in the event of my death. Inside, Eric revealed that he was not Betty's legal father. Remember, she and Graham were both legally recorded as the children of Dr. Gray. The letter went on. I solemnly swear that what I am telling you now is the absolute truth. Although I've made a failure of my life, I've tried to do the best I could for you. So think kindly of me if you can, sweetheart. I love you. God bless you and protect you always. Your loving daddy. The fact Eric gave Betty this letter, just days before Thelma died, looked deeply suspicious to the prosecution. As they explained to the jury... It showed his frame of mind on that night. On our submission... It was a letter of farewell and indicated the writer was intending to do away with himself. But this letter isn't exactly a smoking gun. It's more confusing than incriminating because it makes no sense to say that Eric was planning to start a new life with Eleanor Brownlee and simultaneously planning to commit suicide. Let's get back to the single most important question the prosecutors had to answer. How did Thelma Mario overdose on Veronal? The Crown said Eric gave her the drug twice. The first dose was on the night of Friday the 12th, 
three days before she died. The police spoke to two of Eric's neighbours, who said he admitted giving her Veronol that night. Thelma had been feeling unwell, so she took the drug voluntarily to help her sleep. The next morning, Saturday the 13th, Eric got up early and had a bath. His son Graham heard a couple of bumps in the bedroom. He went in to find Thelma clinging to the dressing table, swaying and mumbling incoherently. They put her back to bed, where she slept for most of the day. She only woke later that afternoon. By this point, Frida Stark had arrived. She and Graham tried to keep Thelma awake and talking. She was conscious, but barely able to keep her eyes open. Then, Eric Mario came in. He brought a cup of hot milk in with him and a plate with a slice of dry bread. Together, they encouraged Thelma to take a bite. She chewed the mouthful that she had and swallowed it. I then gave her a drink of the milk. I held it in my own hand and she drank not quite half a cup. Then when I was giving her the last lot, she was getting very drowsy. She closed her teeth and wouldn't have any more. Next, they took her to the bathroom. She wasn't capable of walking on her feet. She was dragging them, so we practically had to carry her out. By the time I got Graham to help me back with her, she had fallen fast asleep. The household went to bed. Frida got under the covers with Thelma. Eric slept in a chair next to the bed. Frida couldn't sleep. She said Thelma was gasping and gurgling. She tried to wake her, but couldn't. Thelma stayed unconscious all Sunday. Frida repeatedly urged Eric to call the doctor, but he refused. He said to let her sleep. Thelma never woke up. The next day she was dead. According to the Crown, Eric Mario had killed her. He's meant to have laced a glass of milk with Veronol and given it to her, and that was what sort of, as it were, finished her off. This is the same glass of milk Frida Stark helped Thelma drink on the Saturday night. It's at the centre of the entire trial. There definitely was a glass of milk, whether or not Veronol was in it is a, is a different matter. Everybody agreed Thelma had some milk that night. Eric Mario prepared it, then Graham and Frida helped her drink it. If Eric Mario did put Veronol into that milk, he was a murderer. By that point, Thelma was barely conscious after the first dose of the sleeping drug on Friday. There was no way you'd give someone in that state a second dose unless you were trying to kill them. So, was there Veronol in that cup of milk? Well, the cup was never tested for residue and nobody actually saw Eric put anything in it. But the Crown called three medical experts, including a world expert in toxicology, Sir William Wilcox. All three testified there must have been a second dose. The key fact was that after the dose of Veronol on Friday night, Thelma woke up on the Saturday. That meant she'd recovered from the dose she took on Friday. 
As the experts explained, it was medically impossible for her to then relapse into a coma from this point. Unless, that is, she had a second dose. So either Thelma took Morverinol herself, or someone else gave it to her. The Crown submitted that the first option was impossible. Why would she take another dose of Veronol if she was already barely conscious? So somebody had to give it to her, and the only person with a motive and opportunity was her husband, Eric Mario. And feeding into this theory that he's deliberately poisoning her, he repeatedly refuses to get her a doctor when she clearly needs one, and acts pretty suspiciously immediately after her death. Having heard all this evidence, the jury retired to deliberate. Several hours later, they returned with a verdict. Guilty, but with a strong recommendation for mercy. But for a murder conviction, there couldn't be any mercy. Eric Mario was sentenced to be hanged from the neck until dead. The case was appealed. The evidence was heard all over again, this time in front of Justice Callan. Again, the jury found Eric Mario guilty. This time there was no recommendation for mercy. Eric stepped back in shock. He turned to his daughter, standing in the gallery. Betty. Betty. The registrar asked if Eric had anything to say. I have been sentenced on the lying word of Frieda Stark. I ought not to say that, but what can I say? Nothing more. The judge donned his black cap and sentenced Eric Mario to death. But then our story takes a twist. Justice Callum did something very unusual. He was sure that the jury had got it wrong and wrote to the Attorney-General saying as much, which I have never heard of ever happening in any other case. The thing is, until now, we've been telling you the Crown's version of what happened that fatal weekend. In our next episode, we'll look at Eric Mario's defence. He must have had a bad conscience about so many things, but killing his wife was not one of them. In this version of events, Eric Mario isn't a cold, calculating killer. He's an innocent man, and Frieda Stark is a liar. Lies are so difficult, aren't they? I often think that even if people are lying, half the time they they don't necessarily think that they are. Plus, we'll be introducing a new villain, the New Zealand media. It was in full, full nauseating tabloid mode, Um, not just during the trials, but afterwards. Big thanks to my guests, Justice Rebecca Ellis and Dr Charles Farrell. For more on the Mario case, check out their book, 
The Trials of Eric Mario. For more Black Sheep, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever other podcasting app you prefer. Also, if you enjoy Black Sheep, I'm betting you're going to love a new series from RNZ called Untold Pacific History. There's one episode in particular about a New Zealand administrator in Niue, which I'd always wanted to do as an episode for Black Sheep, and honestly, you're going to have to hear it to believe it. Check it out, Untold Pacific History. It's kicking off May 18th, and you can find out all about it at rnz.co.nz. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The sound engineers are Phil Benge and Steve Burridge. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our voice actors are Sonia Yee, Duncan Smith, Grant Walker, Eva Corlett, John Gerritsen and Chris Reed. Big thanks to the Alexander Turnbull Library for the archival audio of Frida Stark. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.